This audio teaching is provided by Segula.net. You are listening to a teaching from our series on the topic of worship. This teaching was recorded live at a time Messianic Fellowship. Today, we're going to be uh, continuing our series on worship. We're in session six right now. And today, we're going to talk about corporate worship. So a couple questions to kind of get things going here. Why do we gather together as believers to worship? I mean, this seems like it's something we all know we do. Like, this is something we're used to. This is something that... uh, yeah, we do all the time, but why? Why do we do it? It's worth asking ourselves questions like that. And what's the purpose of a corporate worship service? So if we answer why we do it, the next question is, well, why do we do it? <laughs> right? Like, um, why do we gather together? But then what's the goal of us gathering together? What, what is our objective when we get together? Does the Bible give us guidelines for structuring a worship service? We're going to talk about that a little bit. The Bible doesn't give us uh, 100% explicit instructions about this is exactly the type of worship service that you should have, this is what it should look like, or anything like that. But but I think there is some instruction the Bible offers us that can help us, at least, uh, serve as a starting point. And then... Next question is, how do we make our worship services successful? And I, I, th- I worded that question kind of maybe a little bit tongue-in-cheek because there's a, what does it mean to be successful? What does it mean to have a successful worship service? I mean, first you have to define what's the goal, right? How, how, and how do we even measure success? Well, well what's, what's the goal we're aiming at? And then secondly, how do we meet that goal? Um, these are these are things to think about, and I, I'm not going to pretend to have all the answers, but hopefully we can uh, look at some stuff that can get us uh, thinking about the right questions in, in the right way, and and uh, seeing what's what's important to keep in mind. So today we're going to look at some passages of scripture first of all, uh, and look at what it means to have a a gathering as believers. What 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 does the scripture say about that? And and then we're also going to talk about um, what it means to have structure in our service. Like what what are the dynamics involved with that? That's going to be our focus today. So let's start off by looking at Leviticus twenty three verse three. If you have your Bible, you can join me in looking at this. So this Leviticus 23, as probably uh, many of you know, is the chapter that gives us God's calendar, right? We've got the, the feasts, the, the Moedim, the appointed times that are spelled out in, in detail in this chapter. And the first Moed, the first appointed time mentioned is in verse 3. It says, Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. 
You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. So my translation here, I'm, I'm reading out of the ESV. Uh, does anyone have a, a different translation for that phrase, a holy convocation? Anyone have anything else? This is, uh, in Hebrew, this is the phrase mikra kodesh. And it's interesting to look at the way the different translations translate that. A holy calling together. Okay, yeah. Okay, a set-apart gathering. Yeah, so it says set-apart, right. Yeah, so so a set-apart gathering, a holy holy convocation. I think those are holy get gathering together. I think these are all kind of saying the same sort of thing. So, so yeah, this the Hebrew phrase behind these different translations is mikra kodesh. Uh, we'll unpack that phrase more in just a minute, but but for now, I think it's safe to say that at minimum, this means getting together, right? Um, getting together with other people. Uh, so there's there's a commandment to have a mikra kodesh on Shabbat and on the the Moedim, the feast days, right? As we read in Leviticus 23. So okay, uh, next verse to look at briefly. Uh, two verses, actually. Hebrews ten twenty four to 25 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Um, and so in Greek, the term here is episunagoge, which is like uh, the verb sunago, means to to come together um, but or to draw together to gather right but it's uh, also the root of the word synagogue right that's where the word, the word synagogue comes literally means a gathering right so so do not forsake this gathering together is what Hebrews the author of Hebrews exhorts us so here's the simple answer for why do we gather together on Shabbat because it's a commandment. God said to, so we do it, right? It's simple. That's, that's, that's the simple answer. Uh, we do it because God said to. <laughs> and most believers would agree, would agree with this. I, you know, I did, uh, back in 2017, I did a survey of the Messianic Torah movement. And for this particular question, there were 432 respondents of those 432 respondents, 80% said that they think it is extremely important for believers to attend a congregation or fellowship, and less than 1% said they think it's not important. So most believers agree that, that this is something that's important, right? Gathering together is something that is important for us to do in, in some format. So, so far we know we're supposed to gather together. That, that much, I think, is clear. But what are we supposed to do when we get together? So far, these verses haven't explicitly said what it is we're supposed to do, right? Do we just play cribbage? <laughs> or uh, have coffee and talk about sports and the weather? Well, what are we supposed to do when we get together? So, uh, the fact is, there's no one place in the Bible that explains in detail what a gathering of believers is supposed to look like. But I think we can get some clues as we examine the scriptures. So let's start by unpacking, let's unpack this phrase, mikra kodesh. So the word 
Kodesh means holy or holiness, right? Um, it's related to the, the adjective kadosh. Kadosh means holy, right? So Kodesh is like holy or holiness or holy place, but it can be used in, in an adjectival sort of way. Um, so for example, Ruach HaKodesh, which is the Holy Spirit, you know, literally the spirit of holiness. But this is one of the ways in Hebrew that you can modify a noun is by adding a, uh, another noun like Kodesh to make it, this is the Holy Spirit. Ruach is spirit or breath, and, but there's the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, which is God's spirit, God's breath, right? So this is a Mikra, Mikra usually means assembly, right? People coming together, people being called together. It comes from the verb kara, kara. It means, uh, which can mean several different things. Usually the verb kara means to call, right? It's a it's very common verb, actually. It's, we see it repeated um, all over through the Tanakh. Uh, so God called to Moses from the tent of meeting. Genesis 1, it says God called the light day. Vayikra Elohim Laor Yom. So it's that, that same word, kara, right? Uh, so it means to call. And so, so you know, in the context of a, a mikra, this is like a calling together, a summoning. You're summoning people to come and assemble. Uh, so that's one aspect of it. Kara can also mean to pray, right? We see this often in the Psalms, I called upon the name of the Lord. It uses that same verb, kara, right? to cry out to God, to pray to God, to, um, to call on the Lord. It can also mean to read. So in modern Hebrew, um, kara is the verb meaning to read as well. It can also mean to call, but it, it can mean to read. And we see this also in biblical Hebrew. Actually, in Nehemiah 8, verse 8, it uses our word mikra to refer to reading the scriptures. So it talks about uh, the, during the reading of the scriptures. It uses the, during the mikra of the scriptures. Uh, and it can also mean to preach or to proclaim. Okay? So these are all potential meanings of the verb kara. And I think these actually give us a, a bit of a, um, a rough idea of what could be involved in a mikra kodesh. In a mikra kodesh, you have people coming together, and praying, reading the scriptures, and the word being preached and proclaimed, right? Some sort of teaching or explanation that's being given. Um, so even just in this, in this phrase, mikra kodesh, I think we get a little glimpse of what, what can be involved in a gathering of believers coming together. Okay, so during the early period of Israel's history, these sorts of gatherings, the Mikra Kodesh, would take place at the tabernacle um, and eventually at the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, after the Babylonian exile, in the late Second Temple era, we begin to see uh, what we call a synagogue, right? Uh, in those days, synagogues had many functions. They served as community centers, study halls, and places of prayer. And by the time of Yeshua, there were synagogues in every major Jewish community, not only in the land of Israel, but also in the diaspora throughout the Roman Empire. So like we read in the book of Acts about how 
Paul or, or, or the other apostles go to this city and they find a synagogue, right? Because there were synagogues in, in every major Jewish community. Um, so the synagogue offered a place for people to go and convene when the temple was too far away. And it offered a place for people to come and hear the word of God read publicly so that they can hear it. Because people didn't, people didn't have a Bible with them everywhere, right? Like, uh, to have a copy of God's word was, was very, very costly. Uh, and so uh, to hear God's word read, you had to go to the synagogue. You had to go to a place of worship where they had the holy books, right? Okay, so we read in the Gospels and the Book of Acts how Yeshua and the apostles all attended synagogue every Shabbat. In Luke chapter 4, verse 16, it says that it was Yeshua's custom to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. It says he went up, when he came to Nazareth, he went up to the synagogue uh, on Shabbat, as was his custom. Meaning this is something Yeshua did, right? This is, this is how he observed the commandment to have a Mikra Kodesh on Shabbat. Uh, Acts 17 verse 2 says the same thing about Paul. Paul went up into the synagogue as, as was his custom. So we see Paul, we see the apostles following in the footsteps of Yeshua, walking in the same pattern, right? Both Yeshua and his apostles were attending synagogue regularly, uh, and this is how they observed the commandment to uh, honor Shabbat. And the early believers continued to meet in synagogues in addition to gathering in homes. You know, I, th- I think a lot of, uh, growing up, I always assumed that the early believers in Acts were always meeting in house churches. That's what, that's what I had been told, that the earliest churches were all, were all in homes and everyone just met in homes. Uh, but that's not quite accurate. Uh, Acts makes it clear that the believers continued to meet in the synagogues and in the temple as well. Uh, and, and meeting in homes was a supplement to attending the temple and the synagogue, not a replacement. This is something that I've already uh, talked about in our series on Luke Acts. Uh, so I'm not going to repeat all that here. You can check it out on our website, uh, segula.net, if you want to uh, see some of that information. But here's just a couple, uh, a couple verses as an example. If we look at Acts chapter 2. Verse 46, it says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So this is talking about the early believers, the early uh, believers fellowshipping together. So they're, they're doing it in two, two venues, right? In, in the temple and in, in homes. And so meeting in homes was not a replacement for going up to the temple. It was a... It, it was a supplement, we could say, right? They're, they're doing both. They're not giving up one in order to go and do the other one. Um, one more example, and then I, I think we'll move on. But in Acts 5.20, sorry, Acts 5.42, it says, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Messiah is Yeshua. So again, they're meeting in the temple and they're meeting in homes. Uh, and these are not meant to be at odds with each other, right? Okay, uh, there's other verses that talk about the believers in synagogues as well, but we can look at that maybe another time. 
Okay, one important development in all this is the public reading of Scripture. So I want to start by looking at Deuteronomy 31. Because remember, like I said, people wouldn't, your average person would not be able to afford their own copy of of the Tanakh or the Torah or even the Apostolic Scriptures. These were um, writing Written documents were costly, right? The writing materials were costly. The materials they were written on. um, And the expense of having someone educated enough to copy something was uh, copy it by hand at that, right? This is a, a big effort involved. So in Deuteronomy 31, starting in verse 9, it says... Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing." Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children, who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. So this commandment is every seven years at the Feast of Tabernacles, the entire Torah would be read in the hearing of everybody, not just not just the men, not just the adults, but even the kids, right? The, the women, the children, the, the, the sojourners, even the, even the foreigners, right, get to be part of this. Everyone gets to hear the reading of, of the Torah once every seven years. So, so the explicit commandment in the Torah is once every seven years, everyone gets to hear the whole thing, right? And that way, you know, young kids growing up, by the time you're a teenager— you would have heard at least once in your living memory the entire Torah read out loud, right? Okay. Um, so, so here we have kind of the first main commandment about reading the public reading of Scripture. Uh, let's take a look at Nehemiah chapter 8. This takes place at Yom Teruah, the first day of the seventh month. It says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood Mathaniah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Halkiah, Hashum, Hashbadana. Zechariah and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. 
And it goes on and talks about how the Levites helped the people understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God, from, from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Okay, so there's an, a number of interesting things going on here. Uh, we have here this, this public reading of the Torah being given, right? And, and note how it, uh, it mentions that Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, right? And then he opened the book and read. So we have a blessing before the Torah reading here. This is the first, th- this is actually the, um, the blessing done before the Torah reading in, in synagogues to this day. They look to this passage in Nehemiah as, as like setting the precedent for this is what we do. When we, when we take out the Torah to read, we first bless God. Um, and so, so we see that. Another interesting thing that's going on is it says that the Levites are, are interpreting the words to the people. So, when, yeah, what exactly was going on? Well, well, possibly what's going on is the people can't understand the Hebrew. They can only understand Aramaic. And these Levites are translating. So that's, that's one, one possibility. They're translating. Another possibility is that they're also adding some interpretive glosses, trying to help the people understand it better, right? So, so there's some sort of interpretation or, or translation or, or um, explanation going on to help people understand, to make sure that it is clear to the people what's being read. Uh, and so, so the point is, this is not... The goal of the public reading of the scripture here is to make the people understand, and we see that phrase repeated a couple times in this passage that Ezra read it to everyone who could understand, right? I mean, I'm assuming that means kids who are old enough to understand what, they can, what, they're, what they're hearing, right? Um, but there's, there's, there's an emphasis on making sure people understand it. This has to, be, has to be accessible to the people. So this event that we're reading took place uh, in, in Jerusalem, uh, but not in a synagogue, quote-unquote, because um, synagogues weren't really a thing back then, but, but this laid the foundation for what a synagogue service would later look like. We see this sort of thing um, being, being used as a precedent for the public reading of Scripture in the synagogue. Let's look at Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21. So this is uh, after Yeshua has been immersed and he goes into the desert, the wilderness, and he is tempted. And then he comes back to Galilee and uh, he begins teaching in the synagogues, right? And it says in verse 16, he came up to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And then he gives this quote from, from Isaiah. In verse 20 it says, And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he goes on and, and they talk about how he's speaking gracious words and he so he's, he gives this little sermon here, right? So we've got a synagogue. By, by the way, this is, this is the oldest description of a synagogue service that we have. 
from all our all our sources, right? So uh, there's there's scrolls, right? Yeshua stands up to read. He reads from the scroll, and then he sits down. He did he didn't go and sit down at the back in his pew, and then everyone's turning and looking at him. No, he's sitting down to teach, right? That's that's what's understood here that he's sitting in in a place where he's about to give a sermon right so so once again just like in nehemiah we have the reading of the scripture along with some sort of explanation and interpretation going on right okay uh, another passage acts 13 so luke and acts here are are some of our earliest uh, witnesses to what synagogue services were like in the first century. Um, Acts 13, verses 14 and 15. It talks about, well, I'll start in verse 13. Now, when Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the Torah and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motions with his hand and begins his, his sermon. So once again, we see this pattern of, of reading from, from the Torah and from the prophets, followed by a a sermon an explanation going on okay last passage to look at here is first timothy 4 verse 13 uh let's start in verse 11 so this is paul exhorting timothy first timothy 4 verse 11 Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And in verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. It's kind of interesting that once again, we see public reading of Scripture followed by exhortation and teaching. That seems to be a pattern that we have here. Okay, so I, I think all this demonstrates that scripture reading can be and should be an important part of our gatherings, right? And, and that it's appropriate for these readings to be accompanied by some sort of explanatory sermon. Uh, this also demonstrates that the early believers continued to follow the same basic structure of worship found in, in the synagogues, right? They weren't, they weren't like, oh, we're rejecting the synagogues and we're starting a new place of worship called the church. That, that's not how it was, right? Um, they, were, they were continuing the tradition that we see all the, going all the way back to at Nehemiah and even back to Deuteronomy, ultimately, right? Okay, so there, there's one potential objection to this, which comes from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 14, verse 26. Uh, now, I've already done, uh, <laughs> we did uh, a series on the Holy Spirit uh, in which we looked at 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 in depth. So again, I'm not going to repeat all that here. If you like your 
welcome to check that out on segula.net. But uh, this, uh, I think it's worth uh, reviewing this one thing a little bit here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 26. It says, What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. So some people read this verse as though Paul is describing the ideal worship service, right? The ideal, the ideal gathering of believers is where each person brings, brings something. Uh, so one person brings uh, a hymn or a psalm. One person brings a lesson or a teaching. Maybe a bunch of people bring them. Everyone's got, um, you know, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation, all these things coming together. And, and there's, sh- so, so some people interpret this to mean that the ideal service is one in which there's no leader, there's no pastor, uh, other than the Holy Spirit. Everyone is a priest, everyone can preach, there should be no formal sermon or teaching, no schedule, no order of service, just being freely led by the Spirit. Um, that's, that's the way some people interpret this verse. Uh, but is this really what Paul is saying? My first uh, question or thing that I think we should think about is what does Paul mean when he, with these opening words? He says, what then, brothers? So this, this phrase, ti-un in Greek, what then? Um, Paul often uses this phrase to indicate a false premise, to, to, to introduce a false premise. Right? So here's, here's some examples that I've got on the screen there for you. In Romans 6, 1-2, Paul says, What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. So he starts out with this ti-un in Greek. What then? And then he goes on to describe something preposterous. Right? Something that he disagrees with. A false premise that he's setting up. Uh, Romans 6.15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Or Romans 7, verse 7, what then shall we say? Is the law sin? By no means. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.19-20, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. And he goes on. So it's possible that here too in, in, in this verse... 1 Corinthians 14, 26, that Paul is setting up a statement that he disapproves of, right? Uh, in, in that case, we, we might paraphrase this verse to say something like, th- like this. What then, brothers? When you come together, everyone has their own hymn, lesson, revelation, tongue, or interpretation. This is so chaotic. Instead, you should make sure that everything is done in a way that is edifying. That's a possible way to interpret it, right? Um, exactly, yeah. There, there's no, right. There's no punction marks or, or uh, punctuation, no question marks in, in ancient Greek, right? So, um, so it's hard to see. Like, is, is Paul giving an excl- exclamation, a question, or, or what's, what's, what's going on here? There, there's some interpretation we have to do, right? Um, and... All this to say we shouldn't just assume 
an interpretation without looking into, well, what are the other options, right? So there's some reasons why I, th I think that Paul is not trying to endorse what he's describing here. Um, one reason is because every other place in the book of First Corinthians where Paul describes the first, where Paul describes the Corinthians coming together, he disapproves. Every other place in the book, he describes when you're coming together that you know there's there's problems, right? There's problems in the way you're coming together. Uh, I'm not going to be dogmatic about this interpretation. Like, I think, I, I, I think there is a there is uh, something important about us all coming to contribute when we gather together, right? I think that is an important thing, uh, but I don't think Paul is trying to say we need less structure, we need less order in our services. I don't think that's what Paul's point is in this verse, right? First uh, Corinthians 14 is trying to legislate order, not disorder. The entire thrust of the passage is against disorderly chaos in worship services. Okay, so we have to admit that all this is still a bit vague. It doesn't tell us exactly what a corporate uh, worship service is supposed to look like. Uh, and for one thing, I think that means we should avoid, avoid being too dogmatic or judgmental toward others who do things a little differently than we do. Scripture gives room for a variety of expressions of worship in a corporate setting, and, and I think that's okay. Um, and we'll talk more about that in just a second. But I, I do believe that a healthy structure is important and can be helpful, right? And this brings us to the topic of liturgy, which I want to spend uh, the rest of this time talking a bit about. Uh, liturgy and structure and how, how that works together. So we already, we already did a session on, on liturgy back in session four. If you remember, we discussed how liturgy and repetition can have a formative effect on us for good or for bad, right? The, our, our habits, our patterns of behavior, they, they affect us, right? And they shape, uh, particularly they shape our hungers. They shape what we crave, what we desire, right? Uh, and that's why we need to have healthy habits and rhythms in our lives that shape us to hunger for God and not for things of this world. But this doesn't mean we should engage in repetition just for the sake of repetition, right? Now, one thing we didn't tackle in session four at all is how to incorporate liturgy into our worship or what kind of liturgy to incorporate or how much liturgy to incorporate. We could all agree that liturgy can be an important part of our worship, but that doesn't mean that all liturgy in all contexts and in all quantities is necessarily a good thing. So this is something we need to talk about a bit, a bit more. And when I'm using the word liturgy here, I'm talking about any structure or framework for worship that is repeated or reused from time to time. So this would include uh, an outline of a worship service, like, like the order of service kind of thing. It would include any, any pre-composed prayer. Songs, hymns, and choruses. This is a form of liturgy too, right? There's something that's pre-composed that we, we repeat from time to time. And rituals, 
Um, so in a messianic service, that might include things like wearing talits or uh, uh, a Torah procession or um, things, things related to that when we have you know, the blessing for the bread, the blessing for the wine or the grape juice. These are, these are rituals, right? And these are things that are repeated. So all this, all this together is under the category of liturgy. These are all things that serve as a framework for offering service and praise to God, right? This, this it's, offers a structure, a framework for, for worship, right? But these are all also things that could, in the right circumstances, become empty and meaningless. I do need to point out, though, that even among believers who are against the idea of liturgy, there is a form of liturgy. <laughs> we talked a little bit about this in session four, how there was, uh, in uh, particularly among uh, certain Protestant groups and evangelical Christianity, there was a pushback against liturgy, where you know there's this idea we we don't want we don't want liturgy, right? We don't want to have pre-composed prayer or, or things like that. That's um, we're against empty rituals, and so they react by going kind of the opposite way, right? Yeah. So yeah, there's this. Uh, these groups tend to emphasize spontaneity uh, instead of using instead of praying a pre-composed prayer. The pastor prays a spontaneous prayer, right? Let's avoid let's avoid doing liturgy by making it spontaneous. But even this is a form of liturgy, if you think about it, right? Even even keeping it spontaneous, well, that's that's kind of a ritual, right? My ritual is I, I don't have don't have it precomposed. You know, at this time in the service, I offer a spontaneous prayer. That's a pattern. That's a, that's a form of repetition, right? Um, it's impossible to escape liturgy. It's impossible to escape structure or repetition. Either we um, have a structure that's framed this way or a structure that's framed this way right any way we're we're doing some we're we're coming up with some sort of what we could call liturgy sometimes pre-composed prayers can be in, incredibly meaningful and heartfelt and sometimes spontaneous prayers can be dry empty and meaningless right picking one or the other does not guarantee a meaningful worship experience right there's no single structure there's no single form that's going to guarantee that we're doing it right and everything's going to be great. Everything's going to be meaningful. Everything's going to be heartfelt. Uh, you can't guarantee that by just the form, right? The form on its own is, is a framework, right? And this, this brings us to an important observation, and that is that liturgy does not equal worship. If we go back to our definition of worship from session one, Worship is our response to God's gracious revelation. Right? So worship is a framework, sorry, liturgy is a framework for worship. It's a tool, it's a, it's a vessel, a container, right? Um, and the purpose of liturgy is to facilitate worship. This means that liturgy is only successful to the extent that it facilitates worship. In other words, the structure, the prayers, the songs, the rituals that we do are all meant to facilitate this revelation and response that we call worship. God graciously reveals himself to us, and we respond by submitting ourselves to him. That process, that transaction, if you want to call it that, is, 
is precisely what liturgy is meant to facilitate. And that's precisely what our corporate gatherings are meant to facilitate. I think this focus on revelation and response is helpful because it clarifies what our goal is in coming together as believers, in gathering together on Shabbat or on on God's appointed times. It clarifies the goal of of structuring a worship service. In an ideal worship service, everything ought to contribute either to the clarity of God's revelation or the quality of our response. Does that make sense? If we don't understand God's revelation, then our response to that revelation is going to be unclear, right? How how do we respond if we don't understand what, what God is saying through his word, right? And so that's where the reading of the scripture is part of worship, right? This is God's revelation. But that's also why the sermon is an important part, because this is where God's revelation is being explained and clarified, right? That's the goal of a uh, of a good sermon or teaching is that it helps to clarify the revelation. It clarifies God's word and exhorts us to respond appropriately. Even the prayers and the, and the music and, and the other aspects, though, they're, they're also sort of a two-way conversation, right? We talked a bit about this in the last session on music, how, how music has a dual purpose, right? And I think to an extent the prayers do as well, right? There's, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a two-way conversation. They, they glorify God, but they also teach and edify us, right? They exhort us. And so, so we, we both learn good, good quality um, songs, and good quality prayers will teach us at the same time that we're praising God. So worship involves this two-way conversation. On its own, if you, if you just hear the phrase, God is great, for example, in isolation, that phrase doesn't mean very much. It's when we see who God is and what he has done we understand that God really is great, and suddenly that phrase becomes our response to God's greatness, our acknowledgement of his greatness. So there has to be this, this revelation and response, this, this two-way sort of thing going on. The framework that is given in a corporate worship service is meant to flesh out all of this and provide the context and clarity to see who God is and what he has done and to enable us to respond accordingly. In other words, liturgy is meant to facilitate worship. In Judaism, there's this concept called kavanah. We talked a bit about that, uh, I think, in session four. Uh, it's, this word means something like intent or, or focus, right? And this is a necessary part of prayer. There's a famous Jewish saying that prayer without kavanah is like the body without the soul. Prayer without meaning or intent is dead, right? Repetition can be a powerful thing, but it has to be meaningful. There has to be that intent behind it. And this is closely related to to one last topic that I think um, is worth thinking a little bit about. And this is a a phrase that I heard from... uh, uh, Christian professor named Dr. Gary Parrott. 
he, he uses this phrase, heart language. Um, each of us has a, a heart language that in, in worship, right? So this is the way we feel most comfortable expressing ourselves. Uh, it's, it's a form of expression we find most meaningful, most natural, that comes, comes to us most, most naturally, right? So this, this can um, relate to our culture and language, right? So those of you who speak a second language know that sometimes it's difficult to express yourself in a language that's not your mother tongue. And the same is true for musicians, right? I grew up playing piano, and then as an adult, I taught myself guitar, but I'm nowhere near as fluent in guitar as in piano. And with piano, I feel like I can, I can freely express myself, but with guitar, it's just it's a lot more difficult to, to express myself. So um, sim- sometimes, um, you know, different cultures are, are like that too. A, cul- a different culture will do things in ways that we find harder to connect with because it's not our, not our mother tongue, so to speak, right? I think this is, all this is similar to the way we express ourselves in worship. Those who grow up in, in faith communities where liturgical prayer is used in a meaningful way may feel more comfortable in such an environment than someone who tries to incorporate liturgical prayer later in their life as a believer, right? If you, if you, did not have formative, meaningful experiences in that, it may not be as natural for you. It may not be uh, a natural thing. Same goes for things like style of music, right? Some, sometimes there are styles of music that you just don't connect with as well as, as one that's maybe more familiar to you, right? Uh, or, or structure, format, just the way people are in a gathering together, right? We each have things we find we connect with better because it's what we're used to, or it's uh, what, you know, it relates to our preferences. We all all have different preferences, right? Oftentimes, your heart language is based on your formative experience as a believer. And uh, this could be, you know, if you grew up in a believing family, your experience as growing up. Uh, It could be if you became a believer later in life, moments where you had a powerful encounter with God or where your faith became real or things like that, right? And I think this is really what's at the core of so many worship wars. We talked about this term last session, how there's, you know, these debates that ensued with the rise of contemporary Christian music uh, where you had the old guard who liked their hymns with piano and organ and the young people coming up who wanted choruses with drums and guitar and, and that sort of thing. And, and what's, what was at the core of that debate is, is this whole issue of heart language, right? Um, or at least I think that was a big part of it. Uh, and it still is a big part of conflict in the area of worship. So that's something that's helpful to think about. Culture plays a big role, and we have to guard ourselves against thinking that one culture is better than another. Uh, this applies to style of music. It applies to style of prayer, to liturgy, rituals, etc. Um, I think what, what's important is the content, right? We have to always make sure, um, we talked about this in the last session, how, how 
we can't just have shallow structure with, with like no no substance, right? Content is important, but assuming all, all, all everything else equal, we can't think that a certain style of worship music is always better. Uh, there may be a certain style that you connect with better because it's part of you know closer to your heart language or your preference, but that doesn't mean that it's better and everyone else is wrong kind of thing, right? We can't, just because one person finds, for example, liturgical prayer to be dry and meaningless doesn't mean everyone finds it that way. We have to be careful not to judge other people. We can't judge other people's motives or, or connections. On the flip side, we can't insist that other people change their heart language. We can't impose a different heart language on someone else, right? If, if someone's not into a certain style and can't get into it, it's, you, you can't necessarily change them. Now, that doesn't mean we can't grow. It doesn't mean we can't stretch ourselves, and, and I think it's healthy to do so, right? Um, it's healthy for all of us to experience forms of worship in a biblical context that may not be our native heart language and to do our best to grow in those, and we can grow in those. Um, but it may never be as natural and fluent as your mother tongue, if that makes sense. All this applies to a mess- Messianic Torah communities very keenly, in my opinion. Uh, in many of our communities, we are trying to recover a form of worship, namely Jewish liturgical worship, that is foreign to a lot of people from many Christian backgrounds. And I've met people that love it. I've met people that like just they love the Jewish forms of worship. It, they, they connect with it so well. It's meaningful. It's, you know, they love the synagogue liturgy. They love the Hebrew language. They love the symbolism of the talit, the order of service, all these different things. But I've also met people that genuinely struggle to express themselves in some of those forms of worship. It's just not their heart language. And similarly, not everyone is able to really connect with some of the uh, messianic styles of worship music. Uh, there are certain styles that really resonate with with you, and and for some people, that messianic oompa loompa style just isn't it. <laughs> and you know what? That's okay. It's okay that we have different preferences. It's okay that none of us are the same as the other person, right? We're all different from each other, and. And it's okay to admit that your heart language is a little different, even while you try to stretch yourself to appreciate styles that are not as natural for you. It's also okay to accept that within the body of Messiah, there's going to be diversity. We have to be willing to accept one another and put up with some of these differences in preference. And I can't judge others because their heart language is different than mine. I can't assume that someone else is spiritually dead because... For example, they love liturgy, and I think liturgy is dead. On the flip side, I can't assume that someone is spiritually deficient because they have a hard time connecting with liturgy when I really enjoy it. Um, And it's impossible to cater to everyone's preferences in a congregational worship service, right? You you, You can never please everyone. But I think incorporating a variety of styles and formats and showing grace to people who are different than me, is, is important. I think that's at least a starting place. Okay, 
Well, we'll to, to wrap up, um, so we looked at some scripture passages about what a mikra kodesh, a, a holy assembly, a holy convocation is supposed to look like. Um, and there's no detailed description anywhere that says this is what a gathering of believers is supposed to look like in, in the scriptures. But, but I think there is ample scriptural evidence for at least the following components. Prayer. So when we get together, there should be prayer, right? That's, that should be part of it. I think both liturgical and spontaneous. I think there should be both, right? Not personally. Um, singing and music, including musical instruments, as we saw in session five. Scripture reading, re- public reading of scripture. A sermon, some, some uh, explanation uh, that draws out uh, meaning and application from what's read and then participatory edification encouragement and exhortation right we come together to encourage one another to build each other up and to exhort one another in the faith so here's some things to think about in crafting a worship service we want to try to make each element contribute to either the clarity of God's revelation or the quality of our response to that revelation. We need to try to be sensitive toward people's different heart languages, even while encouraging people to stretch themselves in healthy and meaningful ways. And we need to show grace toward those who differ from us. Let's close with prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you that you've given us your word and thank you that you have called us as followers of Yeshua to, uh, to gather together and that you've given us your appointed times that we can uh, honor you and that we can build up one another. Help us, Father, to use these times to build up and not tear down and help us to repent from any judgmental attitudes we may have toward others who are different from us and be willing to show grace in areas where um, where your word gives room for difference i ask father that you would teach and equip all of us and that you would help us to worship you every day of our lives not just when we're gathered together but in every moment that we would carry every thought captive to you and that we would serve you in humble obedience Thank you. In Yeshua's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings is made possible for the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segula.net. May the Father richly bless you as you seek Him. And together may we all become a glorious people in Messiah.